podcast from Glasgow International, bringing together artists and curators in creative conversation. Find us at glasgowinternational.org. My name is Graham Fagan. I'm an artist and I'm making an exhibition for Glasgow International this year, which will be at the Queen's Park Railway Club. I'm Maria Fusco. I am an interdisciplinary writer. Graham and I met at the CCA and Graham told me he paid for his own scone and then left the building. <laughs> oh, thank you. I knew you'd get me back for that one day. <laughs> so that's how I know Graham Fagan. I was thinking about that. If you can remember when you first met them and encountered their work, I think that's a bad sign. Um, I can't remember when I first encountered Maria's work because in my head Maria's always been around and about and I quite like that. Doesn't just pen for your scone then? (laughs) No. (laughs) In this episode, Graham Fagan and Maria Fusco reflect on the importance of names and how they relate to our identity and culture, themes explored in Graham's exhibition. The exhibition is called Ping Pong Club. And then in brackets, or after Ping Pong Club, uh, uh, the title continues, The Archive of the Misspelling of Graham Fagan. And along with the exhibition comes a publication. And I guess both the exhibition and publication mediate and document this haphazard archive that I've got, um, where lots of examples of my name or me is misspelt and it's as simple as that. So Graham, I have a nice little quote that I'd like to share with you from Robert Pinsky from a poem called Poem of Names. It's just two lines I've taken. The chains of baguettes and births, the chains of names are meaning itself, the chains of deaths and doings. And I was just thinking about that sort of sense of belonging and the chaining to one's name. Really, how you feel about the misspellings interests me. Uh, That's beautiful lines, Maria. Thanks so much for sharing them. I've got a lump in my throat now after hearing that wee bit of Pinsky. That's really nice. Thanks. Yeah, I guess it's interesting in regards to what he was saying as well, because I think because for as long as I can remember, I was always getting my name spelt wrong. I've sort of grown up with a name that in theory is right and lots of other names that in theory are wrong. So I've kind of grown up with being multi-named or multi-spelt, which is something I quite like actually. And being at school and not being very good at any subject in school, one thing that I thought was good and I liked was spelling the way you thought something should be spelt, which of course has got a lot to do with, I suppose, language and the way that you understand something sonically influences perhaps the way that you might want to spell it. And so I think I'm all for spelling things the way you think or the way you want them to be spelt. I think I'm a fan of that and I support that. So in a kind of strange way, I suppose that means I support all the different versions of me that are out and about and are part of the exhibition. 
and I think the thing that's interesting about it as well is obviously it's my name and it's me, but hopefully the thing that others will get when they see the exhibition or get a copy of the book or both is they'll be thinking of themselves. Have you had your name spelt wrong, Maria? Yeah, do you remember when there was like mail merge? And because my surname is spelt F-U-S-C-O, I used to get fiasco a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Which I really like. It was absolutely brilliant. Yeah, it's your punk name, Maria. <laughs> it's brilliant. Do you think there are lots of Graham Fagans like floating about? I was thinking about it in regards to how the past persists in the present, because a lot of the material in the book, it's quite technical material, I suppose, that pertains to aspects of your practice and obviously exhibitions Scotland Venice etc I'm just happened to be looking at that one just at the moment when we're talking so there's this kind of official documentation side to it but then there's sort of more personal sort of bits as well and I was just wondering if if it feels like it's all the same person I hope this might make sense I think I understand that question in a kind of in a formal sense perhaps in the same way that I'm maybe understand a, a, a formal archive mm. and a more perhaps I don't know what would the opposite of a, a formal archive be maybe like you, a, said, you said haphazard earlier hap- which ha- really yeah. I think is nice yeah yeah haphazard I'm trying to think of a terrible term like folk archive you know something that <laughs> that uh-huh. does does that archive down because oh, it's not as serious or it's not worth as much to people as this formal archive. And and I think I see the misspellings a bit like that. And it goes back to maybe what I was saying earlier about liking the feeling that I'm free and able to spell anything <laughs> in the way that I want to spell it. And, yeah. and, and that idea that archive in a folk sense is something that we've all got, you know, whether it's photographs, whether it's your name spelt wrong, you know, all families or all individuals keep whatever is important to them in that kind of informal sense. But in a real sense and in a very important sense, whatever is kept is so vitally important for the people that keep it. And for me, that's the worth of it. It doesn't matter if Scotland and Venice publicity had the wrong Graham Fagan or that the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom invited the wrong Graham Fagan to come to 10 Downing Street. I know it was me that done Scotland and Venice and I know it was me that was invited to 10 Downing Street, but it wasn't me. And I quite like... That. Maybe, maybe in a sense that allows me to pass on responsibility when I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> What's very interesting, I think, looking through material is it's the level of bureaucracy around mm. artworks. They're com- trying to track their comings and goings. And I'm sure, obviously, we're only seeing a wee tiny bit of what you actually have to engage with. There's a really interesting combination of like idiocy in that because, mm. you know, it's overly, well, perhaps not overly bureaucratic, I don't know, but it's definitely very bureaucratic and presumably necessary for insurance and all that sort of crap on one hand. And then it's completely and utterly incorrect on the other hand because it's not actually 
<laughs> you know, it's not legally, it's not your actual name. So I guess with that, I think that shows up the elements of bureaucracy. And it also shows to someone like myself who works as a writer, obviously I have to engage in bureaucracy, but not in terms of the movement of objects and artworks. If the wrong name is on it, do you ever worry about if it's in like a collection or something, if it's like set in, if it's set on the wrong path? Do you know what I mean? Like how important is it for it to be archived, you know, in a collection, for example, properly? Yeah, okay. Yeah, I think that's a really good question, Maria. And uh, it's interesting. I suppose maybe only in the last maybe five, eight years or so, as an artist, I've started to understand and maybe appreciate more the importance of, of the trail that you leave behind, whatever type of archive it gets called. And I suppose there's been different events or different things that have happened that have kind of given me almost like a slap in the face. Simple things like when I went to help install an exhibition and the museum had borrowed one of my works from a collection and when I arrived I could see the work sitting on top of the crate. So I just went over to it and picked it up and Mm -hmm. an irate conservator attacked me (laughs) uh, with a clipboard and pen and a set of white gloves and told me to put it down. How dare I assume to touch such a thing and I had no right and they were there to look after it and it had to be done formally. So I realised that there were organisations or institutions perhaps taking my trail, (laughs) my archive or my work uh, way far more seriously than I was uh, as the artist who had made them. So, uh, But it's interesting because when it comes to getting the specifics within the institutions right, I quite like the almost hypocrisy of of the institutional formalisation and bureaucracy making the mistakes through spelling your name wrong and I kind of Lovely paradox. Uh, I'm quite pleased with that. And perhaps it shows the kind of humanity that underpins and runs these faithless bureaucracies and institutions. And it's interesting as well, because I I remember a conversation I had a long time ago with David Shrigley, and we talked about like institutions or museums and galleries that we really liked and thought were great until they asked us to work with them, <laughs> work with them. <laughs> they thought they were rubbish. <laughs> like, oh, they used to work with great people. What do they want to work with us for? Um, yeah, that type of thing. But uh, I mean, I-, I talked about spelling in relation to kind of the sonics of, of an accent or-, or-, or something like that as well. But I'm really curious, Maria, as a as a writer, do you get angry when? you do a spell check and you've made spelling mistakes or are you a stickler for spelling or do you allow yourself spelling freedom? Mm. I'm a really shite speller, that's the first thing, which (laughs) is really, really embarrassing. I'm glad to hear it. Yeah, uh I am a dreadful speller and it's really embarrassing, like, for instance, if I'm doing... As you know, like a tutorial, for example, or something, and I have to try and spell out, you know, like um, a name or something to, you know, if it's a reference or something like that. I find that like really, really embarrassing. So I always preface it with saying, 
I'm a really shite speller, so, you know, forgive me. And, you know, to sort of excuse myself from it. And the other thing Graham said with spell check is that, again, as a writer, I mean, I write longhand, you know, when I'm doing my actual work, and then I, I transcribe it, which, again, my handwriting is also appalling. So I lose about, I'd lose about a third of what I write because I can't read. <laughs> Honestly, I really do. Because <laughs> I hold all the tension in my hand, I think. So it's sort of like this claw scraping away at a page. Um, and I do lose a lot of it. But what I've sort of came around to trying to believe with that is that it's like a first entry editorial. I would like it kind of goes through a first process because otherwise I've got all this stuff I've lost. And then when I transcribe, again, and I think this is quite common with other writers, spell check always needs to be off because all those kind of mechanisms, like support mechanisms, you need to get rid of all of them, you know, in order to have more control over the writing and particularly working in like more experimental or as you're saying you know like where you may be working more sonically or something like mm -hmm. that like if I'm writing a script or something something that's a bit more like that rather than something that will be read silently on a page all those kind of formal mechanisms are useless because you're reinventing you know you're reinventing that for yourself in a kind of spatial way and I suppose I was thinking about like with the pronunciation of my own surname so my dad was Italian hence have an Italian surname and in Belfast, it was pronounced Fusco, and I now pronounce it Fusco because that's more accurate, <laughs> you know. Um, but that's not the pronunciation I would have grown up with. And I had an interesting conversation with one of my nephews about it a while ago. So I'm from a very working class background, and you know, luckily for my niece, various nieces and nephews, of which there are a lot, they have grown up in better circumstances than I did. And one of my nephews was taking the piss out of me for changing the pronunciation from Fusco to Fusco, you know, that it was like pretentious. <laughs> and <laughs> I think there is an element of that. Well, I don't, not a pretentiousness, but of like sort of trying to make it more, you know, like giving it back in a sense what it should be, you know. But I was saying to him that I feel I've earned that right with what I've subsequently learned about its correct pronunciation and about being half Italian, you know, how I feel I've earned that, that I can give it that back. Um, <laughs> there was another quote that I wanted to share you, which is from Finnegan's Wake, and it's mercifully short. There's a nice bit where there's a question, which is who gave you that numb, you know, as a name, you know, because obviously there's a lot of wordplay in Finnegan's Wake. And I've always liked that quote because I think some people... It is like a blue. The name is like a blue. And, you know, you're kind of stuck within the, maybe I think about it in regards to class and like what you get from your name. I wonder if you have any thoughts about naming and your own social class. It's quite interesting thinking, thinking about it in that sense. Uh, I, I remember a discussion as we were kind of starting to get to kind of leaving school age and thinking about where we were getting on to and there was lots of talk about class I, I suppose interestingly there was I had an understanding about class when I was quite young and we were part of the Glasgow overspill that had just left a, a tenement flat in Partick which was getting demolished and we moved into a brand new council house 
scheme in Irvin Newtown, as it was then. I think it's just Irvin now. I think they've dropped to Newtown. So, yeah, we moved into this brand new council house and it had a kind of front lawn and a back garden where you could plant herbs and veg and stuff like that. And I remember that kind of sketch where I think Ronnie Barker, Ronnie Corbett and somebody else about, you know, uh, I'm middle class and I look down yeah. on him, I'm working class and I look up on him. Yeah. yeah. And I remember trying to understand my own situation in regard to that sketch. And I remember thinking, well, I wasn't working class because they're like kind of tramps and dirty <laughs> people. And we've just got this brand new house and it's mm-hmm. got a toilet in it. Uh, so it can't, it can't be middle so my, my perception was, well, I could only be in the class that's left, upper class. <laughs> I must be upper class. So I grew up quite happily thinking that I was upper class until that kind of school leaving age when, you know, politics and cultural and social issues were part of heated pub debates. And that realisation that, well, if, you, if your dad doesn't work, you can't be working class. So... Are we an underclass that's below the working class? And that was a conversation that was very poignant and stays with me a lot, that perception of being in a class, a subclass or an underclass that hadn't yet even made the class structure. And I think that stays with me a lot. I was also wondering about, like, obviously when I, when I was growing up in Belfast during the Troubles, your name very much marked out whether you were Catholic or Protestant, you know. Yeah. So obviously having my name, Maria Fusco, is obviously like, I mean, that's like the world's most Catholic name, you know. And then you might have like, I don't know, you know, Wilhelmina Paisley or, you know, <laughs> you know <laughs> super Protestant name. Because obviously in West Coast of Scotland, it is unfortunately still very sectarian. And I wonder when you were growing up, was that present in people's names as well. I think it's important that issues and subjects like that are, are talked about and I totally understand what you're saying about your name obviously being Italian and easily associated with a religion because of that. I suppose in the west coast of Scotland that awareness of names and their associations was certainly there, that knowledge of it was certainly there. Um, and I suppose there was a couple of other um, additions to that. Um, I suppose I, I went to, I guess, what was called a non-denominational school and lots of my friends went to St. Michael's, which was never called St. Michael's. It was always called the Catholic school. So that there was a school that I went to and then there was a Catholic school. So there was the names, there was the places of education which separated you and and perhaps identified you. And then certainly in the west coast of Scotland, the other identifier was if you supported Rangers or if you supported Celtic. My family uh, originally came from Partick and my dad supported Partick Thistle. So I got sort of taken along to watch Partick Thistle. And I suppose that's why... In a sense, I was fortunate and lucky and quite proud to have a football team that was vocally against the sectarianism 
that was associated with Scotland's big two football teams. So from a very young age, I, I was kind of politically positioned <laughs> within football uh, uh, to, to have a point of view, a, a political and cultural point of view in relation to a polar debate about one or the other. I wasn't about one or the other. I was about the complexity of, of life in between and how important it was to understand one and the other in order to have that rich and diverse complexity of life that's in between. Um, it's really interesting, Graham, thinking about that, reflecting, you know, hearing that from me and then reflecting upon some of the major thematics that that come through in in your work, you know, ownership of, of space and place, thieving of space and place to yeah. a certain extent, and, and the kind of ways of being able to identify that and to, I suppose, to give voice to that and without wanting to draw too trite a line between it. But I, I do think that if one has an awareness of that from an early age, even if you're not necessarily like right in the middle, you know, of it in that, you know, like on one side or the other, um, as for instance, I would have had to be because that was the way it was, you know, to be working class Catholic or Protestant yeah. in Northern Ireland at that time. But but it is it's interesting reflecting upon that now through through recent works. I think well, not necessarily just recent. You think there's yeah. something? In that? Yeah, I think there's something in that. I, th- I can't remember if we've talked about this before, Maria, or, or if I mentioned it at the, at the that talk that I, that I done at Duncan and Jordanson that that you had chaired that. I think I used the Stuart Hall quote as part of that talk, where, and I'm paraphrasing uh, the Stuart Hall quote. For those that don't know Stuart Hall, he's, I think he's Jamaican-born, but lived in, in London um, as an academic, sociologist, kind of cultural theorist. And Stuart talked about culture, and his, his understanding of culture was something that if you thought of culture as roots, spelt R-O-O-T-S, then you were off the mark and completely missing the point. And Stuart talked about the importance of cultural roots, spelt R-O-U-T-E-S. So the different paths, the different roads, the different influences that we could have as cultures or have as our culture, but but influenced by and getting knowledge from other cultures and, and being aware of the influence that our culture has had on others and vice versa, that kind of cause and effect relationship, you know, between the empire and the legalisation of slavery of other people in order to make money to enable you to establish the Bank of England, you know, those roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, these are ours, you know, th- these are ours here in in Scotland, here in the United Kingdom. The- these touch us, these form and shape the society and culture that we are today, but also for, for cultural responsibility, you know, for w- what is it? we are part of and, and what's our responsibility in relation to what it is that we are part of. Mm. It's really interesting that and just reflecting on that, that's the Stuart Hall, it's such a powerful way of, of saying, I think. And wordplay, 
I know wordplay is like, you know, it's good fun wordplay, isn't it? You know, like, um, and if you like words, you know, it, it you know, it, it's it's good fun to to move them about in your mouth. But wordplay can be such a powerful tool, a reflective tool, to trying to find the right words for it, but to 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 point at what you're missing through your own presuppositions about how you go about saying stuff, and kind of also importantly what one is not saying and also what in the the example you gave Graham but what's in a sense hidden (laughs) within you know what's hidden within that word by by what's hidden within the word with the two O's roots what's at stake within that and it's just it's very nice to reflect upon the importance of that that something as important can be highlighted with a slight (laughs) re-angling Of a word, it can it can completely open up a, a completely different perspective on horrendous history. On ancestry, I looked up your name, so there's quite good little facts. I'll read you a couple out. There's millions and millions of immigration records, which should be unsurprised to hear, obviously, because it's presumably comes it's an Irish, presumably, and yeah. this is a good one. The average life expectancy for someone of your surname in 1949 was 56. Jeez, and, I've got a year uh, left. Yeah, well, uh-huh. And <laughs> but the good news is, Graham, that in, <laughs> in 2004, it's 66. Oh. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you better get your skates on. Right. That's- you know, Really cheered me up. Really. <laughs> that, yeah, that's good. So you're probably averaging in, what, about 70 now? You've got a good 13 years to go. Right. God, that's interesting you, you looked into that because it, it, it's it's something I've never really wanted to do. You know, it's got, it became very popular, people doing that kind of family history and family tree type thing. And it's I don't know why, but it's something I've never felt like looking into so it's really interesting to get those facts checked out how's the install Graham? just received install shots today so it was looking probably better in the install shots than i remember it was when i left it yesterday the work's been ready to go for over a year over a year now we were just about to take the book to print the week before covid started Thankfully, we didn't send the book to print the, the week before lockdown because we would have had this out-of-date book with wrong exhibition dates on it and stuff. But interestingly, over that period of time, along with the designer of the book, we kind of revisited it and we added a few things, took a few things out, that type of editing, which was nice to happen over that period of time, time that you wouldn't normally have had. I suppose what's really nice about that, and I'm just looking through it as you're talking as well, is that... It feels very, very fresh because the dates are up to the most recent date. And I can imagine that if the project will, as you will continue to accrue, <laughs> you know, more material up until, you know, that the death date that I found on. Desperate <laughs> <laughs> for me to die, Maria. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I'm, I think there's something nice about a trajectory because you know with 
publications and you know that come out and then if there are mistakes in them which inevitably there always are yeah that it's like a moment in time isn't it and they can't you know you can't really amend them and whilst that's very irritating I think it's also nice because it marks a certain that it happened in a certain time in a certain way and then it was you know it was done and I feel with this because you will obviously accrue more of these clearly you know there'll be a lot more it's not going to just suddenly stop yeah it's like a compendium, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I, th- I think that's that's one of the things that's good about it. it, it it's kind of real. I suppose the archive in itself is a real marker of of time, and hopefully that's what the exhibition and book does. It, it just kind of gives us a marker of time of where we're at, just at this moment in time. But but I think by its very nature, just as you say, it is something that's going to push on and move on uh, so what was that 77 years of age so maybe in 22 years time we'll, we'll do the update just before I, I pack it in and we'll get right can yeah. I sign you up for that then maybe we'll do some work for then as well yeah <laughs> brilliant it's a deal <laughs> and I yeah. still owe you that scone I was going to say you looked funny yeah <laughs> Graeme Fagan and Maria Fusco find out more about Graeme's exhibition at glasgowinternational.org. Encounters was produced by Lindsay Moyes for Glasgow International, supported by the Scottish Government's Expo Fund and Arts Fund. Thank you for listening.